in both of the groups today, they came up in, in slightly differing ways, but to some extent, the question of what was it that the Buddha was really teaching about our relationship to anger, to hatred, to love. And uh, I just want to start with reading some probably quite well-known, some of the common statements of the Buddhas about working with anger and hatred and the power of love. And then just talk a little bit about um, some of the effects of working with this practice of loving-kindness in our daily life, just some very basic, kind of modest effects. Um, I just want to give you a few of the Buddha's words. Putting in the context of realizing that everything he taught, according to what he said, according to what we can read, was in the purpose of freeing our hearts and minds from suffering. You know, he said over and over, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. So what I read into that is that the motivation, the point, the guiding principle of all of his different teachings is the very practical how we can bring in our own lives our hearts and minds to an end of suffering. And if we take the teachings of the metta practice of non-hatred, of meeting everything beautiful, difficult, neutral, with clear seeing, with loving kindness, we can see that from the point of view not of maybe our um, psychological mode of thinking or our good-bad mode of thinking, you know, I should be this loving, kind person, right? Or I'm bad, you know? So we make this kind of ideal then when we can't meet it, which so often we can't, we think, well, I got angry and I shouldn't have to be a good person. I shouldn't have gotten angry. But then we get into our whole rationalization. But how can you not be angry? How can you possibly meet these difficult things in the world and not be angry? And anger is, you know, you all know, I'm sure. <laughs> and I find in myself that kind of argument, it comes partly from the difficulty of actually manifesting loving kindness and compassion. It is difficult, let's not kid ourselves. But also, if I'm taking it as a should, I should do that to be a better person, to be a good person, rather than from a totally practical point of view of I'm going to suffer more if I continue to meet difficulty with anger, with fear, with craving. Not that I have to do it to prove I'm an ideal person, because I want to suffer less. So from that practical framework, I find that it gives me a lot more spaciousness of motivation to really try out and explore and listen to what the Buddha was saying with an ear for, well, maybe it's true, let's try it, rather than immediate, I can't do it and he's wrong, so forget about it. It's like, well, maybe he did know something about the ending of suffering. <laughs> Maybe I could keep trying it. You know? So some of this is from the Dhammapada. And as I say, I'm sure it's quite familiar to you, but just to hear his words as far as we can know them rather than ours. This is from a new rendering of the Dhammapada by one of the monks in the Ajahn Chah tradition uh, from, from uh, Amravati, Ajahn Menindo. 
I just found it. It was just in my mailbox the other day. So that was nice. <laughs> it's better than what's usually in the mailbox. <laughs> Bills and requests for money. Now this is very famous, but it sets the tone for the whole Dhammapada. These first two verses. All states of being are determined by mind. It is mind that leads the way. Just as the wheel of the ox cart follows the hoofprint of the animal that draws it, so suffering will surely follow when we speak or act impulsively from an impure state of mind. Two, all states of being are determined by mind. It is mind that leads the way. As surely as our shadow never leaves us, so well-being will follow when we speak or act with a pure state of mind. When we hold fast to such thoughts as they abused me, mistreated me, beat me, robbed me, we keep hatred alive. If we release ourselves from such thoughts as they abused me, mistreated me, beat me, robbed me, hatred is vanquished. Never by hatred is hatred conquered, but by readiness to love alone. This is the eternal law. Those who are contentious have forgotten that we all die. For the wise who reflect on this fact, there are no quarrels. More than a thief, more than an enemy, a misdirected heart brings one to harm. Neither mother, father, nor any member of a family can give you the blessings generated by your own well-directed heart. Just some of the very well-known, very basic, but quite profound statements you know, if you realize he's saying this not as nice little epigrams, but as absolute statements of his experience of what brings us to happiness. So then we are left with discovering how to do that here and in our lives, and not to uh, be flippant, but not make the mistake of expecting too much too quickly, which is easy to do in our fast-paced society. And not to think um, often on leaving a retreat or even moving from a loving-kindness retreat to a Vipassana retreat. If you've had even a few moments of, of either the strength of the feeling of metta or that sense of the barriers disappearing, or the sense of even uh, an intimation of the possibility of the power when the heart is open, when the mind is connected. That's important, as we've all talked about, as Michelle spoke about a lot last night, because that gives us some inspiration, some faith, as Susan talked about, based on our own experience, that yes, this is really true. The power of a connected heart does bring happiness for myself and for others. As we leave, though, or switch practices, or just start to think about something else and lose that experience, 
it can be easy then to think that we have to always be in that depth or that power of the heart, emotional, mental experience of metta for it to be of value or for it to even count at all. And when, guess what, it's a little harder to access in the middle of work three weeks from now, it can be easy to think, well, what was the use? I can't always be on retreat, you know? How can I access it? And so that, I think, is a big mistake we make. I want to talk a lot tonight about the little ways, the moment-to-moment little ways that we can consciously bring in the sense of metta connection in our life, the little ways that we can notice when it's arising spontaneously here or in life, as well as the courage it takes, the commitment it takes to keep on looking because a lot of what we need to do is be willing to look at the habits of mind that get in the way. The Buddha, I want to give you another thing from the Buddha because it's different, a different kind of story. He certainly had to demonstrate often in his life times of how to work with anger. It's not that after he was awakened and he spent 45 years teaching, it wasn't that everybody who came to him was completely devoted. I mean, it was India. It sounds like India then is a lot like India now, only maybe there's a lot more people in India now. But there were a lot of wandering ascetics, a lot of wandering uh, spiritual teachers, and a fair degree of contentiousness. So there's lots of examples of people coming to him and challenging him and saying, what do you know anyway, and so forth. So anyway, this one, again, pretty well-known sutta where uh, a Brahmin, uh, a layman, came to the Buddha and basically was... uh, was angry at him, kind of, you know, cursed him, reviled him, rude, harsh words going on and on, basically yelling at him. And the Buddha has a, had a famous way of responding, which first was with an example that if, if people come to visit you, friends or colleagues, and you serve them with delicacies and food and give them gifts and all these things, and if they don't take those, if they leave them, if they don't accept them, then who do those gifts and delicacies, the food that you offered, belong to? And the Brahma said, well, then they're still mine. They stay with me. And he, Buddha said, just so. So when you offer me these anger and harsh words, <laughs> if I don't accept them, then they stay with you. <laughs> he said, it's all yours. It's all yours. But this wasn't the end of it, because that person actually took that as that the Buddha was angry with him. And he basically said, you're an arhan. What are you doing getting angry? Arhan's not supposed to get angry. You know, this proves that you're not. And the Buddha said, basically, I'm not angry, you know. And then he gave this little stanza on working with. You make things worse when you flare up at someone who's angry. Whoever doesn't flare up at someone who's angry wins a battle that's hard to win. You live for the good of both, your own, the others, when, knowing that the other is provoked, you mindfully grow calm. Very practical, 
really. He's not saying we're floating on a cloud and everyone will be nice to us because we're trying to practice metta. He's just saying, you know, it's for your good and the good of the other. If you see the person's angry and you can mindfully grow calm, you know. When you work the cure of both, your own and the other's, those who think you are a fool know nothing of the Dhamma. To me, that's actually that last statement is really important because it's partly what was coming out in one of our conversations that societally it's not necessarily so supported that our anger is the cause of our suffering and that it's a, a worthy um, aspiration not to act from anger, to free our hearts and minds of anger. That's not always supported in this world. And um, often you are seen as a fool, you know, or we feel that we're seen as a fool or a weakling or some kind of passive person who's afraid to act, whatever, you know. So it seems to me even in the Buddha's time that dichotomy between what he was teaching and what some people, and not everybody, of course, but some people might say to you when you try to take that stance of not returning anger for anger, seems like that was true back then as well. So I just find that interesting. It's not that he was just saying, oh, be happy, be peaceful, don't get angry anymore, and he didn't have to deal with the same things. He knew, you know. It's just a difficult road. It requires from us both some verified faith, some verified faith from our own experience, which hopefully, both on and off retreat, our practice can help us recognize. And I also find in, in, in our life, in both metta and vipassana practice, it takes a really deep commitment to ourselves from understanding the value of cultivating loving-kindness and connection and compassion, that the value of that is worth the uh, commitment of energy that it takes to keep paying attention with care and kindness, not only when we feel connected, but all the many times, the many, many times that we don't feel connected or that we feel that we failed, or that we find ourselves lost in um, resentment again, or fear again, or longing again. Rather than feeling that's a failure, that's the exact place that we need to dive in with our loving kindness, to dive in with our attention. And that's the place that we learn. That's the place that the strength of metta is developed. It's easy when everything's hunky-dory, It's when it's difficult, and a lot of the times the difficulties in ourselves, that the kind of the strength of metta really begins to be cultivated. So, really what we can, um, what I've found really powerful over time in my daily life is to recognize that it's just about moment to moment of experience. I think I said this the other night. But that metta is very much about how do I meet this moment of my experience? And that's, that's like a workable piece of life. 
this moment. You know, even if I'm in the middle of a big frenzy about something, if I can remember, okay, what's happening now? How am I meeting this moment? Even if the answer is, I am meeting this moment with total frustration and anger and it's all your fault, still <laughs> being able to say that already makes a shift. It's like, oh, that's how I'm meeting the moment. And who's suffering? <laughs> Mostly me. So, how we meet the moment. And what's very practical about the metta practice, all those times that we're not particularly feeling any emotion, is what I mentioned and I want to elaborate on tonight, is the fact that we're cultivating wise intention. Intention of heart, intention of mind. Intention is the... um, well, what we call motivation, but it's the, the movement of mind and heart can be very subtle that leads to even thought, but speech and action. And intention often manifests its thought. In terms of the way the Buddha describes and understands what really brings us suffering and what really brings us happiness in the world, what's a skillful action and what's an unskillful action or speech, it's not so much about the result Because, as we see, that's really not in our control. It's about the motivation, the intention, with which we speak, with which we act. In fact, it was so important in his scheme of trying to describe how we can practice to live an awakened life, which would be the Eightfold Noble Path, which is a whole talk in itself, but it's our day-to-day way we can live, beginning with, wise understanding, how we understand ourselves, the world, how we understand what causes suffering for ourselves and others, what brings happiness. How we understand ourselves and the world leads to how we think about the world, the intentions with which we act. And the second step of the Eightfold Path is just that, wise thought or wise intention, leading to the next three steps, which is speech, action, and livelihood, how we manifest in the world relationally with others. And there's a sutta where he's very specific about what wise intention is. And he gives three specific wise intentions, that the unwise, or really the suffering intention of greed, comes to be countered with, or it transforms through understanding, to renunciation, just letting go of holding on, renunciation or generosity. The unwise or suffering intention leading to actions that cause suffering of ill will, just basic negativity, not liking, disliking, anger, hostility, the whole range. The what that transforms with wisdom into and what purifies that is metta. And then the unwise intention of cruelty is transformed into compassion, karuna. And this happens spontaneously when we understand or just naturally feel our connection with the being. You, you see that happen here, I'm sure, when something bugs you and you just turn your attention to the person and think, oh, well, they're doing the best they can, you know. They're making a lot of noise. Oh, but maybe they're really uncomfortable, you know. And that, you don't have to meditate for a day for that to happen. It's just 
a natural, or maybe you do, but it's just, <laughs> just kind of happens quite naturally from connection, very, very normal, you know. But also, we can cultivate it through thought to begin with. And that's what, as I said the other night, this form of the loving-kindness practice that we've been cultivating here, where we're repeating these thoughts over and over. And I was saying it's sort of like a joke the first night, you know, what would we be thinking about if we weren't repeating these phrases over and over and over and over? But it's not really a joke, is it? What would we be thinking about? What does the mind naturally incline towards when it's untrained, when it's uh, awake, when it's unaware? You know, it either runs on drivel, which is a good deal of the time. (laughs) Maybe that's only me. The rest of you are having (laughs) really wise thoughts about how to save the world. Um, It runs on drivel, or it goes to how I can get more pleasantness, how I can get rid of unpleasantness. And how often is the pleasantness or the unpleasantness concerning another human being? or another person. And at that time, that person, there's no connection. It stops being a person. The person becomes an object, really. The carrier of our pleasure, or the potential carrier of our unpleasure, in which case they've got to be gotten rid of, or controlled (laughs) in some way, right? And it's good to see it in little things on retreat, but follow it to its logical expansion. And it isn't funny. I mean, it's really the source of of all the craziness and the pain in this world. And so I think what we're doing here, sitting here saying these phrases, like, oh my God, you know, again, so many people have said, I totally understand, I've been there (laughs) completely nauseated by these phrases. I cannot (laughs) summon it up one more time, you know. But then you find a way to. You find a way to, you know. That passes and you find a way to. Even you're not feeling anything. But even you're just mouthing the phrases, but you're trying at least to know what you're saying, you know. It's very important because on a level, and this is, this is really what surprised me in my life after having done some intensive metta retreats, that on a level is completely unaware of, you know, we're looking for some feedback pretty regularly, aren't we? I mean, it's pretty hard to go through even a day without some kind of feedback that something good's happening. It generally means we feel good, doesn't it? Usually. I mean, some big blow-up comes and you're overwhelmed with anger and you come into the group and we go, oh, good, you know, the purification's happening. How many of you really go out thinking, oh, really good, I'm so glad, you know? (laughs) You know, great, you know, this is a good feedback. No, we want the juicies, we want it to feel good. And a lot of the time it's not particularly, at least in my practice, it's not particularly feeling good. But what really surprised me on leaving and just living my life without trying to feel like the embodiment of loving kindness and compassion everywhere I went. I mean, let's face it, I I did have that ideal in mind, you know. Somehow we become, 
you know, the light of the world. And you come out of a meta retreat and everyone, I, said, I think I said this in a group, you know, people fall at your feet going, oh, I can't believe you are radiating so much love and compassion. <laughs> Where have you been, you know? So, let me go there too. <laughs> occasionally, honest, honestly, occasionally that does happen. <laughs> you actually might be a lot softer in radiating something that you don't know. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not kidding now. Sometimes that does happen. But when we go out trying to radiate it, well, <laughs> that's a whole other story. And that's not what it's about. But what I did notice is that on some much more... Um, what's the word I'm thinking of? It starts with M. I could really, uh, Yes, modest. Thank you. <laughs> On some much more modest level, that moment-to-moment shifting of intention that's happening when we're repeating the phrases and actively connecting is really having an effect. And the effect that I noticed in myself was that the natural habit of mind would still spring up and then the metta would arise spontaneously to balance it. Let me give you just little examples. My tendency of mind tends towards the aversive. You know, others might tend toward greediness. I think you've got kind of a bunch of aversives up here, <laughs> except for Susan. <laughs> That's just how our minds go. So that doesn't mean you're angry all the time. But how I actually, I noticed, this is a little example, but it's when I really got how the, the habit pattern of intention of the way my aversive mind works. I was on a ferry, a day ferry in Thailand one time. And it, it was a beautiful day, sunny, bright, lots of people on the ferry. I was just sitting up in the sun quietly, you know, totally pleasant. Um, and there's a bunch of people down below, and one woman, um, kind of very skimpily dressed, acting out, calling a lot of attention to herself. And my mind immediately could tell she was American. And I thought, oh, <laughs> Americans, which of course, you know, Americans are always like so obnoxious, and, 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 and now everyone's going to know I'm an American, and I started shrinking in my seat, and there weren't that many Americans, there's more other nationalities. And I saw my mind doing this. Out of the whole field of experience, of sense experience, most of which was pleasant, my mind completely latched on to the one unpleasant sense experience. I mean, it wasn't even affecting me. It was way on the other deck, you know? And I got completely absorbed in the negativity of it. It, it, it cracked me up. And since then, I've watched. That's what the habit of my mind does. I'll go into uh, an experience in the dining room. I noticed this on retreat. And there'd be one person that somehow something negative, you know, just they looked unpleasant or they were making a noise or they were in front of me in line and slopped some food on the counter. It doesn't mean I wouldn't slop food, but never mind. And my mind would just go to that. And what I noticed started to happen with the metta completely spontaneously, both in retreat and out of retreat, was the mind would do that with its usual habit, but then rather than sticking there, what would come in automatically was the connecting and inclusive energy of metta which wouldn't limit the person to that one thing, 
but would then connect with and see the whole person and go, oh, so they're a slob, but they look like a really nice person. You know, something like that. That's the best an aversive mind can do. But. <laughs> you don't really get a new personality. It just broadens out. It gets more inclusive. So cynical, but it doesn't really mean it. You know? or I, another example, I, I would go home to the cottage where I live, which is really lovely. I like it a lot. And my mind would walk in, and if I walk in and it's kind of dirty, right away, the mind just starts grousing. It just sees this one speck of dirt on the floor, you know? Everything else is beautiful. The sunlight streaming in the window. I'm going, oh, my God, the dirt on the floor. And then with the metta, just automatically the mind would just see the rest and look around. It. Oh, yeah, it's really beautiful here. I'm really lucky to live here. And that wasn't a forced, I should do that. It begins to happen spontaneously. For someone who has a more tendency to attachment, to wanting, you know, who sees the good and what you don't have, the metta could do the same thing. Expand around, include the whole picture. Oh, I don't have this, but I do have this. This beautiful day, this quiet moment, this soft, gentle rain, you know, a sense of appreciation. Sure, we can do that consciously, but what you might begin to notice is how it begins to show itself spontaneously, that the habits of mind and heart indeed are beginning to change. The connection becomes a little more strong. We begin to trust it unconsciously a little more through the power of our loving-kindness practice. And, of course, we can consciously work in this way, which is one of the ways of bringing the intention of working with metta into our daily life. We don't just have to leave it, well, okay, that's good, and maybe when I get back to the next metta retreat, I can work harder and then it'll happen some more. I mean, we can also continue to pay attention in our daily life to bring in this spaciousness, this more inclusive quality of connection. You know how Thich Nhat Hanh... Thich Nhat Hanh likes to say that most of us ask the question, what is wrong? We forget to ask, what is right? And both are useful. You know? He says, there's many things that are not wrong, When you focus your attention only on what is wrong, you can make the situation worse. Therefore, it is wise to meditate on your capacity to enjoy peace, happiness, and joy, your capacity to be in touch with what is refreshing and healing in the present moment. And then just to to the example he gives next is to show this isn't just something little, like I'm annoyed because there's a speck of dirt on the floor of my cottage, and then I look at the nice light coming in the window. I mean, that's an easy one. But he's talking about in the midst of really difficult, atrocious suffering. During the Vietnam Vietnam War, as you know, he was an activist in the war, we were so busy helping the wounded that we sometimes forgot to smell the flowers. Night has a very pleasant smell, especially in the country. 
but we would forget to pay attention to the smells of mint, coriander, thyme, and sage. So I would mention these to the social workers and peace workers so they would be in touch with them. I mean, it it doesn't sound like much. I grant you, in the midst of helping the wounded and a horrific war, to stop and smell the flowers, right? It sounds almost, almost like a cliché. And I know in my mind I can tend to have this evaluation that the depth of the suffering is so strong that the sense of appreciating what is right has to be equally as powerful a thing. But it's not true. It's not true. It's because it's really about opening our intention from fear, hatred, holding away, to connection, to inclusivity, to not feeding that fear and hatred and longing in ourselves. And that's really what we're working, not on the outer level, but on the inner level of our intention. And often, in the midst of really strong suffering, if I can stop and get out of that mind state that's completely absorbed long enough just to hear the birds singing outside the window, it moves into really a much more spacious quality of connectedness to life rather than this complete absorption in all my troubles. That comes back, and the troubles don't go away, but the intention that relates to them can really change. One of the, um, the aspects of non-metta, ill will or wanting, that I mentioned I want to talk about a little more, is that sense of when there's the non-inclusive, non-connected quality of metta, how we, the habits of mind, the unwise intentions, create either an experience or a person into being the other. You know, really the sense of there's me and there's the other. And I maybe want the other to make me happy or make it go away, but that that seems to me that distancing, that separation, really the source of our own internal suffering and then of the speech and actions from unwise intention that continue suffering on into the world. In a little example, I noticed this last fall. I think I talked about it in the retreat last fall, of how wanting, in that amount of time, just a little thing, can create someone into such an object. I was driving up here from the study center for a sitting or something, but I wasn't late. And I was driving down the driveway of the study center, which, as you know, is just down the road about two minutes away, and they had a retreat going on there. So it was a walking period or something, and one of the people on retreat was doing very mindful, slow-walking meditation right in the middle of the driveway, the exact middle of the driveway. (laughs) And you couldn't really get by on either side. So I was driving down and saw this and had a little sense of wanting to get up here in a hurry, even though I wasn't late. And that wanting to get up here in a hurry, and I saw that person there and immediately is like, what's the matter with them? They're in my way. And they could, of course, hear the car. You can hear the car. So they moved over like two inches. (laughs) (laughs) 
like I'll make a gesture, you know, I hear you, but it, I still couldn't get by. So I had to stop, you know, and just wait until they kind of slowly, slowly, being a good yogi, you know, slowly, slowly. Move. And in that moment, I saw really in the space of a finger snap, how I went from just a little thing of wanting to get up here in a hurry to this little burst of negativity, and that person became a total object in my way to be gotten rid of. It was scary. So, I mean, I, then I noticed it immediately. And this is the power of simply kind noticing of the habits of mind that caused the separation. We don't have to hate them. We just have to notice them. As soon as I noticed it, like, oh, wow. Look at that. That's really painful. That's a moment of metta and mindfulness to oneself. And this is really how we confront the difficult, separating, painful, suffering-producing habits of our mind and heart. Not with hatred, not with blame, but with clear-eyed metta, clear seeing. Oh, wow, that's painful. It's scary. And look, if I could do something, you know, if I wasn't a little bit more restrained, I'd open the window, you know, and say, what's the matter with you? Move over. What's the matter with you? You know? And it could escalate from there, as we all know. It could escalate. And so seeing it, the moment I saw it with that kindness, the whole thing just evaporated, you know? You really, oh, there's nothing to hold on to here. This is just suffering. And it goes. The power of clear-hearted, clear-seeing connection of metta and of mindfulness is so much stronger, really, than our suffering habits of mind. It's just that we have spent so much time habituating, cultivating, really, our suffering habits of mind. So much more time cultivating them, you know, than we have cultivating metta or clear seeing. That we get impatient, you know, that the metta isn't like working all the time. But if you really look at the ratio of how much time we spend cultivating, you know, the suffering and how much time we spend cultivating the metta, well, actually, you see how much stronger the truth really is. So that sense of how quick we can go to make someone the other. And I read a newspaper article, that was a couple of years ago, about... Aggressive driving, road rage. And I I was really um, struck by it because it's talking about a survey that was made by the the AAA Foundation about aggressive driving. And the survey, they were finding that there's a huge increase in the percentage of aggressive drivers. Um, And they say what that includes, just in case you don't know. Weaving in and out of traffic, Excessive horn honking, running red lights, tailgating, passing on the right, making obscene gestures, <laughs> screaming, and headlight flashing. Plus, I have a friend who um, I think he performed one of those acts in Texas where he used to live, and uh, the guy behind him kind of pulled him off on the side of the road with a gun. So, it, I mean, it gets out there, Right? And uh, <laughs> this, but the point of this article is they're going on and describing, and this is just a regular newspaper, what, how this manifests, how this aggressive driving can be on the increase and in how, how we do it. And he says, 
person who's writing is a psychologist, says, if someone on the road upsets you and you're in a car, that individual's whole identity becomes encapsulated in this bad thing he did, right? They're not someone with kids and a sick dog and they're hurrying to get to the vet to the clinic. They're just that bad person who cut you off. He's not seen as a whole person, and there's an urge to express your aggression on this anonymous other, to think I can get away with, I can't let him get away with this. The thin veneer of civilization is removed. (laughs) Because the car offers anonymity. You feel like you're invincible. The car provides a buffer zone that makes it easier to dehumanize the other driver, much easier than if, for example, you were walking together in a hallway and you were seeing each other face to face, right? We'll do stuff and say stuff to someone in a car you'd never do face to face. And so the advice, what he advises his patients who have had to come to him because of their road rage, he advises them to practice compassion the other drivers by thinking of your own mistakes and to visualize non-aggressive responses without acting out your aggression. It's just, you know, it's actually so true that when people begin to study in a scientific, as if that's what needed to happen for us to believe it, it, it comes out to be the same thing the Buddha was talking about. Lately, people keep sending me and I keep picking up articles of various studies on the power of forgiveness, the healing power of forgiveness in one's own mind and body, of letting go of resentment even for horrific things that have happened. Not as should, just scientific studies on what is more physically and psychically healthy. So we can work on the level of the aggressive driving, just looking at our mind, and how it creates that sense of separation, that sense of the other, like I explained. We can also consciously work in uh, more active ways to really bring our loving attention to meet head-on those aspects of ourself that keep us locked in suffering response, in separation, in negativity. I give This is a, an example. I'm not saying we should do this, but it really struck me from St. Francis of Assisi, who I recently read a biography of. I didn't really know much about him, except, of course, that the common, what's known of him, that he was you know, really loving and just saw all beings as his brother and sister, even talking about death as his sister. You know, That's all I knew about him. But his life was quite interesting because he was born to a wealthy family in Assisi, and basically spent his growing up and his youth, his young manhood, as a kind of rowdy leader of the debauched section of young rich men in the society of Assisi, you know? And apparently, sort of secretly for a while, before he actually came out as a renunciate monk, (laughs) he was kind of secretly doing things of generosity. But... The thing that struck me was one of the first things he did was confront one of his deepest loathings and fears, one of the deepest kind of separations that he created in his mind with other people. And that was with people who had leprosy, uh, which is now called Hansen's disease. And apparently there were a lot of people at that time in the Middle Ages in Assisi 
with leprosy. And as was the common practice, they would um, be removed from their family situation once they were diagnosed with, with leprosy to stay in kind of hospitals and homes for people with this disease. And there were a few just below Assisi. And of course, then, one who lived in Assisi would constantly run into people with leprosy, begging or whatever, on the roads. And he just had an abhorrence of it. It scared him. It disgusted him. He couldn't stand to see or be around anyone who had this disease. And so, um, as the biographer was saying, his he, Francis was convinced at this point, even though he was still acting like the debauched young man, um, his meditations on Christ convinced him there really was only one way of radically reducing misery in the world, and that was by persuading people to love God and their neighbors without reservation. And he intuitively understood that he needed to dismantle his own selfishness before he could move into a deeper, more profound level of love and connectedness. And so he started where he was, you know, confronting his own disgust and fear, which was of people with leprosy. So what he did was first he uh, just went out on the road to give alms to someone with leprosy, to meet the person face to face, hand him the food, the money, whatever it was, kiss the person's hand, to really open-heartedly be there. And it wasn't really in that knowing. It was nothing to do with that person that was disgusting. It was his own fear, his own you know, not liking to be with what caused fear or unpleasantness. And then after that, he saw the power of that, and then he went to the whole hospital for people with leprosy and distributed alms and spent a lot of time there. And he ended up, over his life, being one of the people who, who worked in these hospitals and did a lot of uh, loving things for people with this disease. There was some, they weren't sure, but they thought maybe when he died, one of the causes of his death that he actually had contracted, to some extent, leprosy that affected his lungs. But anyway, it's a powerful to me image of going right to the source of one's creation of distance, which isn't the person with leprosy. It's his own fear of that, and to really meet that with love. That's, that's really stayed with me as a powerful possibility. It doesn't mean, and I don't mean, that we should get ourselves back into this idealism of, you know, now I have to go confront the person who's hurt me the most or the most scary thing in my life. We can start with the aspects inside ourselves that we're making the other, that we're holding away, that we can't meet with acceptance. It might be just the patterns of mind of self-hatred, of self-judgment, of worthlessness, of negativity. I found... Um, again, the conscious practice of this form of metta practice really helps me with that on a daily basis. Like many people, I had a deep ingrained pattern of self-judgment. That, and when it really gets rolling, which of course it isn't always rolling, you need to notice that if that's a strong pattern of yours. It isn't always rolling. It might not take much to get it going, but it isn't always rolling. 
But once it is rolling nice and strong, you could do anything, right? And it'll go, yeah, right, well, you're just doing that to try and make people think well of you. You know, you're just doing that. It just, it's endless. It's important to recognize that pattern with mindfulness as judgment or self-negativity, to feel the pain of it. So I don't mean to push it away or deny it. But once we're familiar with it and it starts rolling, you can actually consciously decide where to let the mind dwell. Do I want to cultivate aggression, aversion, and negativity towards myself? It's the same aggression as towards another. Or do I want to switch the channel to metta? And that's what you guys have been developing. You're developing a metta channel. You can really change the channel. You start by simply saying the phrases to yourself. And if you have a cynical turn of mind, the first few times you repeat the phrases, there'll be a little punctuation after each one or all of them, (laughs) which you can just say, thank you very much. And Kiko, yeah, right, Meta, give me a break. You know, you're making me sick. Yeah, may I be happy, fat You know, and it keeps going like that. But what I found, much to my amazement, the second or the third or the fourth repetition, that started to drop away. And actually, suddenly, the tune, I, I can't do Meta without it being to a tune. It just sings in my mind. It's always the same tune. It starts to come in. And pretty soon, the heart is meaning it. <laughs> it's just a made-up tune. <laughs> I wouldn't inflict it on you. <laughs> and it's really actually changed the channel, you know? Those self-judging thoughts aren't running, and the metta thoughts are. It's really very powerful. It's not like, oh, you know, the beauty of the universe, but it's quite a difference. So don't be afraid to change the channel when you see we're going down a road that leads to suffering. You may not feel the emotion, but stick with that. Stick with it. It really does make a difference. And then we can turn that same quality onto more difficult and painful aspects of our own experience. For example, physical pain or physical illness or grief, loss, you know, really strong uh, pains that we've been living with. Not to make them go away, but simply to include this aspect of experience without making it the other, you know. Someone said today in a group that she'd been dealing with a lot of physical pain and suddenly got it that happiness is presence. It doesn't mean happiness means the pain goes away. But in total presence, which is metta, there's peace, there's ease, there's metta. It doesn't mean we have to make the pain go away. Um... I'll just read a short thing. Susan reminded me of this. It's a long article. I just want to read a little bit. Written by a man who had a degenerative lung disease. And he was in the seventh year of it. Uh, He's a a Buddhist practitioner. 
a student of Chogim Trungpa's, and he was describing in this article a lot of the different ways he was learning to open to, to come to terms with, to include the disease and the effects of it in an open heart and mind. He says, um, just a couple of short... He said he was reading a lot of articles about people with degenerative diseases and how they talk about their battling for life, you know, against cancer or kidney failure or whatever. And he says, you know, it, it implies a battle that illness and death are assumed to be very bad news, perhaps a punishment of some kind. And I know personally it's easy to internalize that with illness, with sickness, that it's a punishment, it's a sign that I'm bad, I've done something wrong. So already the other, and I'm bad. And he said, I would rather not have a knee-jerk reflex towards battle. Something's happening in my body. Do I have to go to war about it? Paraphrasing the words of Dylan Thomas, do I have to burn and rave and rage? Can I make another kind of response? And the response he chooses to make is to simply bring full kind attention to what's happening and to the effects of what's happening and to see. This is another example. Walking anywhere with friends, especially uphill, is an occasion for silence because I cannot walk, talk, and breathe at the same time. Every gram of oxygen must be used for locomotion. There's nothing left over. Superfluity must go. This becomes an amazing metaphor in my life, in my mind. What is superfluous? Anger that freezes into resentment. Jealousy, greed, gossip, ego clinging, pretense, embarrassment, running after pleasure, the discursive thought that maintains the storyline of me. These things are very costly in terms of the life energy that it takes to keep them going. They're what conversation is mostly about. I can't take in enough oxygen to support them anymore, except by holding completely still and doing nothing else. When the oxygen is diminished below a certain point, you must choose, absolutely, between feeding all your mental bloodsuckers and taking care of your true business. You can't afford to keep them around as pets. (laughs) So what an opening, what a discovery follows from that simple realization. Could I ever afford it? Can anyone? What made me think that I could not let go of this expensive baggage before now? And he just goes on and on, not in a mushy way at all, but in really seeing how by opening to and including the disease in his full connected attention, a whole other world of understanding opened up for him. You know, he said, how could I call this an enemy? You know, how could I call this something to battle? It's simply what is. Internally, externally, we can bring that quality of clear-eyed attention, which is metta, which is also mindfulness, to whatever's arising that's painful, that's difficult, that's wanting, that's causing suffering and separation. It doesn't mean we can't act or respond appropriately. Not at all. In fact, as I said the other night, we can see so much more clearly that it's not that we even think, oh, I'm going to do a big meta-action. 
is just what I heard one teacher call doing the obvious. You just do what's the obvious thing to do in a situation for the benefit of, of beings. So my favorite story that demonstrates this to me, I heard on, on NPR, National Public Radio, a couple years ago, an interview with a basketball player. It was his first year in uh, the NBA, you know, and it's appropriate now since the NBA final playoffs are happening. So I'll tell some NBA stories. <laughs> and it was his first year, his rookie year, which I would imagine would be really like the culmination of what would be possible for a young man to make it to the NBA, right? And they were interviewing him because his sister had kidney failure and needed a kidney transplant. And he was a match and was planning to donate to her a kidney, if he was a match. I think they didn't know yet. And that meant the end of his career in the NBA, which I'm not sure why, but it did. And the interviewer was like, all agog, oh, you're so amazing, giving up your career to give a kidney to your sister. And the guy was just so, what are you talking about? I have two kidneys. It's my sister. She needs a kidney. I can give it to her. He didn't say this. I'm saying it's the obvious thing to do. That's really meta. You know, not I am giving such a loving thing. It's, there's no separation. There's, no con- there's just connection. One does what's the obvious. I'll just end with this short from Shantideva, who was a great Buddhist teacher from, I think, the ninth century. Even when I have done things for the sake of others, no sense of amazement or conceit arises because it is like having fed myself. I hope for nothing in return. So let's feed ourselves for a little while. So thank you for your attention, and just please stay gently but sincerely with your practice tonight, through the night, through tomorrow morning, even if you think nothing's happening. There's a lot going on that we're not able to intellectually realize at the moment. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.